and that's where it was kind of born. And so it's just my way of giving back to this industry that I love and helping, you know, one person at a time. Over those 10 years, you spend enough time in this industry and you're going to hit a bump in the road. You're going to realize that there's a lot of big ups and there's a lot of big downs in this uh, industry here. And it's it's really about smoothing those out so that you can enjoy this industry and the people that you work with more because you don't have that kind of, you know, looming over your head of like, when's that next bus coming, right? You got to have a passion for it, right? Because it's going to take time. It's going to be a little bit of a grind at first to get things up and going. You've got to have that passion for it. You've got to have a strong enough why, otherwise you're going to burn out. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Samuels, and this is another episode of Coffee and Liquidity, the podcast that sits nicely at the intersection of curiosity and business. The American dream can mean so many different things to so many different people. There's no one right answer. There's no one right path forward. But let's talk about ways to set yourself up and your family up for financial freedom in the future. All right, back in the saddle Thursday to August 12th. Got a, I got a guest on this week uh, that uh, haven't gotten a chance to to dig in with too much, so I'm going to be learning uh, along with you guys here, but have been following along uh, on his podcast, Rigs to Real Estate, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, Colin Platt, he is a uh, petroleum engineer, real estate investor, and entrepreneur who began investing in single-family rentals to help smooth out some of the ups and downs of the oil and gas industry. For those out in here in the oil field, you... Uh, you probably have more than your fair share of stories about that. And certainly can understand where he's coming from there. Uh, and today he focuses on large 100 plus unit apartment buildings and is a general partner in close to 2,000 doors across the southeastern United States. Uh, like I mentioned, he did start the Reeks Real Estate podcast to give back to the oil and gas community and help other oil and gas professionals stop living from the boom to the bust. Again, like I mentioned, I'm sure we've all been there and can understand where you're from there and looking to generate some passive income streams. And so you can understand for those of you who have been following some of the previous episodes, why I'm super excited about having Colin on today and being able to pick his brain about some of that uh, going forward here. So with that, I'm just going to go ahead and bring him on. Colin, how are you doing today? Good. How are you guys? Doing well, doing well. Appreciate you taking the time. Where are you based out of? Where are you calling from today? Denver, Colorado. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. I've been out here in Midland for about seven years, originally born and raised in, in Houston. Now, was Denver, is that like family home base too, or have you just moved out recently? Yeah, no, I uh, grew up in Plano, Texas, went to Texas A&M, and then somehow, you know, ended up in Durango, Colorado, right out of school. And I've been in the Rocky Mountains ever since. Um, so been in Denver since 2014. And really, I'm up here on my own with just, uh, you know, my immediate family. Everybody else is back in Texas. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, now, so uh, tell me a little bit about the journey that got you to, to where you are today. I mean, you mentioned that you uh, started out in Plano, uh, found yourself in Colorado, but uh, how did you uh, find yourself in oil and gas and what was that journey like? And I mean, are you still in the, uh, the oil and gas industry as well? Yeah, yeah. So I'm still a full-time uh, production engineer for a, Del- a Delaware asset-based uh, company. And uh, so still full-time W-2 in oil and gas. I love this industry. I love everyone I work with. i um, been doing this for about 10 years. And probably kind of, you know, what we're here to talk about today is 
over those 10 years, you spend enough time in this industry and you're going to hit a bump in the road. You're going to realize that there's a lot of big ups and there's a lot of big downs in this uh, industry here. And it's it's really about smoothing those out so that you can enjoy this industry and the people that you work with more because you don't have that kind of, you know, looming over your head of like, when's that next bus coming, right? Absolutely. So before we uh, dig in a little bit and, and uh, peel that onion back, talk to me a little bit about why you know, real estate, just as an asset class in general, you think is a strong bet right now and, and sort of where where it sits in the market. Uh, you know, I know that uh, as of recent, the residential market has seen uh, an incredible amount of growth um, uh, on your on one of your recent podcasts. You talk about Blackstone coming in and putting a bunch of money into you know buying up uh, residential real estate, etc. Talk to us a little bit of just kind of the market in general and kind of what you what you're seeing from your seat. Yeah, so I mean, strong fundamentals um, pointing towards more growth in real estate. You know, it's it's a supply and demand question, right? And there is a very large gap between the demand and the supply for affordable housing across the U.S. And that gap is not improving. If you look at replacement costs, which is what it costs to build new affordable housing, it's physically impossible in most markets um, without some sort of government subsidy, which there are some out there, but there's a lot of bureaucratical tape and stuff like that. So the bottom line is there is not a lot of affordable workforce housing being built right now. So I'm still very bullish on that workforce housing, multifamily sector, residential sector. There are other facets of real estate that I do like, uh, self-storage being one of them, mobile home parks. And again, it goes back to supply and demand gaps and everything like that. And I think, you know, there's several that I would probably stay away from right now. Offices would be one, um, you know, retail if there's not a very, very strong anchor. But for the most part, I'm I'm not married to one sector of real estate or even real estate in general. I think the biggest thing for me is just finding passive income streams and multiple uh, income streams that are not correlated to commodity prices that can help you smooth out the ups and downs of this industry. And, and one thing I like to say is like, fall in love with finding a solution to the problem. Don't fall in love with an individual solution because solutions come and go. But, you know, if you fall in love with finding solutions, then you're always going to have success and always have that kind of fulfilling mission uh, and purpose in life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, what uh, it takes to be successful is, you know, small iterative tweaks on an existing idea. It doesn't have to be some leaps and bounds, some some brand new outside the box. I mean, a lot of times just that incremental improvement is really all you need. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, not reinventing the wheel. That's one thing that I loved about real estate was, yeah, it checked all the boxes that I was looking for. I was looking for tax advantages, passive income, appreciation over time, and for it to be as passive as possible, right? Because we're all busy professionals, um, especially when times are good in the oil industry, right? Like when oil is $100 a barrel, a lot of us say we miss those days. But I mean, you remember those days, it was it was lights out all the time, just going uh, you know, pedal to the metal the whole time. And um, mm-hmm. that never really uh, clears up until it's completely the rug gets pulled out from under you, right? And the point is to be doing things when times are good to be better prepared for when times are bad. Yeah. I mean, how? Uh, what's some uh, just kind of general advice on how to approach that um, you know, for, for those that are in the oil field and, and you're needing to prepare for that? What, what would you say to those people? Yeah. I mean, obviously the big thing is like get control of your own finances first. You shouldn't be looking at you know, investments and stuff like that until you have really control of your own finances. So, you know, we've all seen it. You live in Midland, you've passed by, you know, the house that has a brand new Denali 2500 pulling a Malibu wake setter uh, in front of the house and like none of it's paid for. Right. And that's hundred dollar oil. Right. And um, Mm -hmm. the point is like to, to really live within your means and 
try to not live from boom from bust starts with your own personal finances. Now, when you get that lined out, um, you want to start looking at things that can earn you income while you sleep and things that are not going to be tied to commodity prices. I know a lot of people um, you want to invest in what you know. Right. First and foremost. But uh, at the same time, like I know oil and gas, but I wanted to diversify my holdings and make sure that, uh, you know, the next bust in oil and gas didn't affect all of my investments as a whole. Right. So uh, real estate and um, oil and gas commodity prices are, are not really correlated at all. Uh, unless, you know, unless you're investing in rental real estate in Midland, Texas, right? Like then you're, I wouldn't say you're actually diversifying there, but you got to think about, you know, um, what is something that you, number one, can be passive, can create income for you. Uh, Number two, like you got to have a passion for it, right? Because it's going to take time. It's going to be a little bit of a grind at first to get things up and going. You've got to have that passion for it. You've got to have a strong enough why, otherwise you're going to burn out. And so, yeah, number two, find something you're passionate about it because it won't feel like work. And that's the whole key is like if you are creating a little bit more um, activity and, you know, I'm going to use the word work uh, to get these things up and going. You want to make sure that you have a passion about it and, and it doesn't feel like extra work. Right. And then number three is start networking with people who have done it. And that I think is the biggest key right there is just. Don't um, try and reinvent the wheel and go your own route. Like start talking to people who have been successful in what you're trying to do. Download the download those lessons from them. If you have to pay for a mentor, I've talked about this on the show a lot. Um, you're going to pay a tuition either way, right? So if you go your own route and you go the lone wolf route, it may take you longer to learn. It may take you longer to get started, and you're going to pay that tuition over more time. Uh, or you can pay a good quality. I'm not talking by like your fly by night gurus um talking about someone who's actually doing what you wanted to do and is available to mentor you and help you get through it and even if that costs money you're at least paying that tuition up front and you can download those lessons and uh, be on a faster track to get going all right thanks for listening to the show really appreciate the support guys if you're from west texas or another area in the country that doesn't have access to high quality fresh fish on a daily basis you know the struggle of you know you just want a good quality cut a salmon, halibut, cod, maybe some lobster, shrimp, calamari, scallops, something. But you just can't find it at the supermarket. Guys, Sizzlefish is the answer. Mission is simple. They want you to eat well and live better. It makes a huge difference. They have a fantastic website. It's super easy to buy, subscribe, get discounts, etc. Check it out, alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners and scroll to the link for Sizzlefish. I'm going to go ahead and drop the link in the show notes for you guys. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And with that, let's get you back into the show. Thanks, guys. No, I think that that's fantastic advice. Uh, you know, I, I can speak to personally, you know, how how incredibly impactful a good mentor can be. I mean, it can it can it can really be absolutely game changing. Um, in the real estate realm, are, are there any specific places that you may uh, you know tell people is is you know LinkedIn a place for, uh, for people to to network, or or is there another you know ecosystem online that's you, where can you find some of those people? Do you think? <clears throat> So it, de- it depends on where you want to go. Um, Facebook and LinkedIn, I think, are two great places to get started. Um, you know, LinkedIn is going to be definitely more of a business crowd, busy professionals that are looking more for the passive investments and possibly doing bigger deals, right? So uh, it, I think it boils down to the, the statistics. I'm going to butcher this, but it's about the 
average household uh, income on Facebook is like $30,000. On LinkedIn, it's like $110,000, right? So you're going to be surrounding yourself with more people who um, are on either platform is the direction you want to go, right? So LinkedIn, obviously, mm-hmm. more business, busy professionals, they're going to have higher uh, cash flow goals and, and bigger goals than um, someone trying to get like their first single family wholesale or something that, you know, is on a, a Facebook group of 30,000 other people. Um, like that's not really the incubator you want to join. You want to join people who are, you know, have um, similar strategies and goals as you and, and really work on that and, and also be meeting with people that are actually doing what you want to do. What are some of the uh, the things that you would uh, you know, point to as keys to success? I mean, you, you know, so uh, you know, like I mentioned in the intro, it looks like you you started with single family rentals and, and now are you know partnering close to two thousand doors. I mean, that that's a pretty uh, fantastic ramp up. What are some of the things that you, you were able to see in the market that helped you scale, or kind of what's unique maybe to real estate uh, you know in that realm? Yeah. And I I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it is networking, right? I think it's Jim Rohn that has that quote out there of your, your network is your net worth. And really, Mm -hmm. um, when I got started in single family, I was going my own route. And I realized very quickly that what I was doing there was not going to scale to meet my needs. Everything we do in the oil and gas industry, everything I do in my job is reverse engineering like that ultimate goal, right? Like we want to meet this production number. We have this much capital to spend. And when I really sat down in single family, like, yeah, it was great. I could cut my teeth. I learned a lot about the lingo in the industry and, and the power of teamwork and stuff like that. But at the same time, I realized that I would have to do that 50 to 60 more times, like buy 50 to 60 more houses uh, in order to reach my goals. And after doing that first one, I realized like, this is not going to work out well, right? You know, we're sitting here trying to smooth out the ups and downs in the industry. And if I'm on the phone, you know, with contractors calling me, cause you're the, you're the guy, right? Like you're the lone mm-hmm. wolf, guy or girl, of course, um, you have to answer those calls. And if they come in the middle of the day, like there's nobody else that can tell your contractor what to do or not do. And, and you got to take that call. And I was like, this is not, lining up with my ultimate goal, which is staying in oil and gas and just smoothing up the ups and downs. And so that's when I found um, through networking, I realized that I could uh, take smaller chunks of bigger pies, you know, 100, 200, 300 unit apartment complexes, add value to the groups that are taking those down. And these guys have, you know, 10, 20 years of experience, and they are professional apartment managers and have done this full time for for years. And they've learned all those lessons. And I just found ways that I could add value to them. And that's how I started getting in my getting my foot in the door. And then, you know, they start giving you more and more responsibilities, right? Because we're we're talking about people that have net worths north of 10, 20, 30 million dollars. They don't want to script an investment webinar, they don't want to do monthly investor email updates, like they love that. And obviously, they did it throughout their careers to get things up and going, but now they have these higher level tasks that are very important to them. And so if you can come in and add value and take things off of their plate um, in different ways, like it's a great way to get started. And, and, you know, like I said, get small pieces of larger pies. I think it makes a lot of sense. So a couple of times now you've mentioned, uh, you know, uh, really understanding sort of the why and, and the motivation behind doing this. And and it's, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned that because I actually have a podcast starting in a few weeks that's called 
the Why Drive podcast that really talks exactly about that. <laughs> um, and so like uh, maybe we can cir- circle back up on a uh, on a show on an episode of that at some point uh, and really dig in there. But I'm curious, coming from from a different angle, what are maybe some uh, some reasons or, or uh, you know what are some reasons that you'd point to that you know this may not be a good fit or or some red flags so you uh, or maybe maybe if you want to answer it in a different way you know some <clears throat> mistakes to avoid if, you know as you're getting started you're just kind of advice in that regard. Yeah, I mean, so I guess would be we'll start with your question about who's this not for, right? Um, it depends on how you want to get involved in real estate, right? And I have a six question framework that if you listen to episode six of the Rigs to Real Estate podcast, it kind of walks through that framework. But I have about three ways that you can get started in real estate that I believe are the best three ways for busy oil and gas professionals to get started in real estate. And it kind of filters down of like, you know, what are your monthly cash flow goals? Where's your time best spent? Because, you know, I, I get a lot of people that, um, you know, maybe they own like a, a chemical company or a services company. And they're like, yeah, man, I've been looking at houses in Topeka, Kansas that are in cash flow $300 a month. And like, these people have a net worth of two to $3 million. And, you know, they're busy 60, 70 hour work weeking, or sorry, 60, 70 hours of work of work each week. And you got to say like, hey, is your time best spent chasing down 300 bucks a month in cash flow in Kansas? Or is your time best spent when you're not at work uh, with your family, enjoying a hobby, taking you know time off to recuperate for your, your um, job there? And then also, or is your time best spent like focusing on your number one income source, the thing that got you that high net worth in the first place, right? And so these are the questions mm-hmm. that you should be answering. Um, and another question in there is like, you know, are you okay giving up control? Because some people, they just want control of everything and they want to go about it their own way. And they don't want to have to rely on anyone else or partner with anyone else. And, and that's perfectly fine. Like there is a way for them to get started as well. It's obviously going to be probably a slower route, right? Because you can't leverage uh, the strengths of others. But at the same time, you know, any t- anytime you get started, you're doing better than 90% of the rest of your peers. So um, yeah, I mean, as far as who it's not for, you know, if you're sitting there with a million dollars in uh, credit card debt, like obviously it goes back to what I talked about at the beginning, like focus on your finances first, take care of that first. And then the person that you have to become to conquer that will be ready to take that next step and, and do some investments. Yeah, and no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I appreciate that. So um, let's talk about, uh, I think the last question there was uh, any sort of general mistakes to avoid when, when you're getting started. What uh, what are some red flags? What are some things that you might sort of, you know, tell someone just get, you know, getting off the, out the jump here? Yeah. And the, the biggest thing I've seen, uh, and this is talking to hundreds of oil and gas professionals, the biggest thing that I've seen is, not mistakes when people get started, because you're going to make mistakes when you get started. And you've just got to learn from those and you've got to keep going forward. The biggest mistakes I've seen are just not getting started at all, right? So everybody thinks they have to have all these ducks in a row. And so I've got to have money. I've got to have an education. I've got to have time, right? And the truth is you could really start with two out of the three of those things. I've met and networked with a lot of people that have been wildly successful starting with only one of the three of those things. But the key is they started, right? And it comes Mm -hmm. down to a lot of people uh, think it's such a big risk to step out. Um, And the way I handle that is like, you're taking a bet on yourself. You're taking a risk on yourself. So tell me what's riskier. You waking up five years from now and you've done literally nothing to change the problems that you have or the problems that the industry uh, stress has put on you or your life or anything like that. 
and you've done nothing to change it over the last five years. Or you got started, you bet on yourself, you got that education, and maybe you uh, had a little bit of time that you could spare to do that. That's two out of the three things. And you got started Mm -hmm. five years ago and built, um, you know, whatever it may be in five years. Like, tell me what's what's riskier, you know? I think waking up five years from now, having changed nothing is far more riskier and you're going to hit bumps in the road. It's kind of like, um, like a, a climber climbing up a cliff. You know, if you're free climbing, like every, every 20 feet or whatever, you chisel in another part to where you don't fall past that 20 foot mark. Right. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of the key to the game is just getting started. It's really hard to ride a bike standing still. Um, you may skin your knee along the way and it's going to be a lesson learned. And you're going to be a stronger person because of that. What are some of the skill transfer that you see, you know, from oil and gas and that profession into real estate? I think that's one of the biggest messages I have on the show is just how transferable these skill sets are. Uh, I'm a production engineer, completions engineer by um, by career, and the first time that I saw a trailing T12, which is the T uh, profit and loss statement for an apartment complex, and also a um, a rent roll. It, it just like it looked like the same language that I've always been speaking. A T12 is no different than an LOS statement, right? So it's a small business and it's no different than an individual wells statement. You have uh, a production stream or in this case, rent uh, times occupancy is your income. You have expenses and at the end of the day and you have debt to cover as well. And at the end of the day, you have profit. And so the first time I saw that, I was like, wow, OK, I've been doing this for years. And then also just being around the A and D side of the oil and gas business. I understand how financing works. I understand, um, you know, interest rates, a lot of the terms associated with that. So there wasn't a steep learning curve associated with the financing side or how the business actually worked. So I think a lot of those skills were super transferable. And then another big thing that, you know, throughout my career is just networking with other oil and gas professionals that kind of came second nature to me with real estate too. It's just a different group of people to network with, learn off of, and, and really try to provide as much value as possible. Um, and that gets reciprocated through, you know, karma or whatever you want to call it. Like the more you give and, and put out into this world, the more you receive as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, uh, um, so let's take a, a quick, uh, not break, but uh, tell people you know where they can find you. Tell, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, Rick's Real Estate. Uh, you know, if, if someone's interested in engaging further and kind of hearing more about what you have to offer, where you know where can they reach out? Yeah, for sure. So the Rick's Real Estate podcast is on anywhere you listen to your normal podcast, right? So uh, iTunes, Spotify, the, the list goes on. Uh, those are the two major ones. Um, and we have a bunch of great episodes on there. I've interviewed everyone from, you know, an oil and gas professional who hasn't bought their first house yet, but it's just kind of walking through the grind and what they've done to get started to the point where they were at. Um, and then I've interviewed people that have $300 million of assets under management that could download stories of decades of experience. Um, you know, I've had Amazon best-selling chief economists, um, that type of thing. And I really just anything that can provide value and help people get started. So go check that out. There's a lot of content over there. I think we've got 55, 56 episodes at this point and some really good ones in the hopper ready to come. So go check that out. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so I'm always trying to post stuff that I think is valuable content. And then we also have a rigs to real estate um, podcast group on LinkedIn. So if you reach out to me, I can send you that, uh, that invite, or you could just search for it on LinkedIn and, and find us there. So, uh, really just trying to provide as much value as I can. Cause that's what I started Riggs to real estate for was, you know, 2020, 
watching friends, colleagues, people that I've spent the last 10 years with when they lost their jobs. I mean, it was like their entire identity was wrapped up in that. And I was really bumming out. I was like, you know, I wish there was just a way that I could help these people. And, um, and you know, light bulb, right? Duh, just tell them what you did and tell them stories of other people that have done the same thing and help smooth down, smooth out the ups and downs of this industry. Um, and that's where it was kind of born. And so it's just my way of giving back to uh, this industry that I love and helping, you know, one person at a time. And so when did you buy your first property? 2019. And it, I mean, so leading up to that, there was obviously like a lot of education that went into that um, and and research and everything like that of selecting a market. And and then obviously the, the pivot into multifamily took a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, over the last year, we've, uh, I've, I think partially or, or significantly portion of it uh, you know, has been because of COVID, but we, you know, we've seen a relative mass exodus away from a lot of the major metroplexes into more urban areas. And, and we've seen some other, you know, some areas of like Idaho um, have, have uh, you know, uh, sprung up populations, et cetera. Um, what, what do you think about just sort of marketing in general at just like a macro level? Uh, do you think that we're going to continue to see those trends of the you know the populace moving to more urban areas and, and what that what might that mean for like an investment thesis? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, and, and I will say like these aren't just my opinions. What I'm about to say, I do follow um, again many economists around the uh, the lower 48 that are much smarter than I am. And I, you know, value their input a lot and their data and everything. Um, I think generally the trend of people leaving uh, business unfriendly, tax unfriendly, uh, populous metros, like your gateway metros, your New York's, California's, everything like that, and migrating towards what I'll call uh, the Sun Belt to the Southeast. So uh, anywhere from Phoenix over to Florida uh, and north up to Tennessee. I think that trend is going to continue. COVID actually, that trend was in place well before COVID. Uh, right. Number one. Number two, that trend accelerated dramatically during COVID. We have some properties in Sarasota, Florida that it's it's really interesting. That market there has experienced such explosive growth and there is zero building going on there. And so that's what I love is a good supply and demand problem, right? To where you can plug yourself in to a supply and demand problem where there's no new inventory coming on and the supply that's already there is already there. And, you know, we're experiencing 99.9% occupancy there. We're pushing rent growth in the double digits, you know, record rent growth month after month after month. We're meeting our year three pro forma uh, in month six, you know, so those are the type of places that you want to plug yourself in. See where people are moving. You got to watch population. You got to watch politics. You got to watch landlord friendliness. Um, these are all things. And I have, you know, a couple episodes on my podcast where I go through like what makes a good market. But yeah, I'd say, um, you know, start your search, filter out everything from, uh, or sorry, filter to everything from uh, Arizona over to Florida, and you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Now there is some some places that are not seeing the population growth. It's not the same story across the whole Southeast, um, but definitely you know follow that population growth. And uh, somebody posted this week actually, uh, Nicole Gautier posted this week uh, a U-Haul thing of like where where all the U-Haul cars are going. Like that's an excellent data point, right? So uh, yeah. the top three. Uh, I, th- I believe it was Texas, Florida, and Tennessee was number three. And, and I own properties in all three of those states. And it's not a coincidence, right? Like right. Um, really focus on those on those major centers. So 
that's one trend I see continuing. Um, I, I see us continuing to transition to a renter uh, population, and that's actually going to be exacerbated even more with the baby boomer population. A lot of them, unfortunately, like their retirement plan right now is selling their single family house and renting through retirement. And literally no generation prior to them has ever done that. And this is the biggest generational shift. You know, uh, the baby boomers was the biggest generation prior to uh, millennials. And I think even they're bigger than millennials. Um, So, you know, follow them. Like there's corporations and, and people who have made billions and trillions of dollars literally just following what the baby boomers have done. And so what we're seeing on trends there is they are selling their single family houses because the value has gone up, you know, three, four X in the last 20 years that they've owned it in most cases. Mm -hmm. And that's their retirement plan. They have no savings other than that and social security. And so where are they going to go? They're going to go where jobs are going. They're going to go where population is going. Cause guess what? They're following uh, their nieces, nephews, granddaughters, um, sons, daughters, and everything like that. So if, if they're all moving to Phoenix or they're all moving to, you know, Tampa, Florida, guess what? The baby boomers are going to sell their house in Ohio and move down there and rent in retirement. And so that's a massive population shift that I don't think is accounted for right now. And again, they're going to be moved. They're not going to be looking for that, like urban core luxury access to restaurants and everything like that. They want to be where their kids are. And uh, typically that's going to be like a garden style apartment in the suburbs, you know, your classic class B uh, workforce housing type situation. So um, just pay attention to the trends and, and really don't try to get ahead of them um, or don't try to be fancy or, or do anything like that. Like, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just pay attention to these big long term demographic swings. And I think you'll set yourself up for a lot of success there. What are some of the challenges that may be unforeseen in trying to tackle doing this in you know more than one market at a time? Or is that not something that you'd advise uh, until you've reached a certain proficiency in the process? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the beauty of passive investing is you can invest passively in an apartment building with people who have been in that market for 10 years, know that market, maybe have gone full cycle on a uh, full cycle, meaning like they've bought, improved and sold for more money um, an apartment in that particular market. So you don't have to go out, be boots on the ground. And like I said, you know, chase down 300 bucks a month per door in Topeka, Kansas. Like you can my, my strategy there is live where you want to live or live where your job is um, and invest where the dollars make sense. Right. And so that's the beauty of investing passively is you can choose uh, Phoenix. You can choose Sarasota, Florida and, and place an investment there and uh, put it across different asset classes, different um, uh, asset classes, meaning like a class A apartment versus like a class C workforce housing. And there's a great balance uh, between there, but just making sure that you're well diversified. Now, if you're going to go the lone wolf route, I do suggest starting in one market, focus on that market, get to know it really well, build a team there, build a good portfolio before branching out into another market. Yeah, no, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, so for some listening today are probably you know living in Midland like myself, and and you know this uh, market is, you know, it's interesting. You know, it, you'd think it would be very tight oil and gas because of how cyclical it is, uh, but I mean the, the housing market out in Midland really seems to lag behind the oil and gas market to the, to the extent that so like back in let's see 
what, 14, 15, 16 downturn, the, the housing market really didn't correct much at all. And then the 17 had an uptick. And, and so the, and then the market, you know, went went along with that. And so it sort of acts very much you know, in a bubble. Um, are there anything, I mean, number one, I'm curious if you sort of agree with that thesis and any, any commentary there. Um, and then yeah, totally. You know, I, uh, I actually lived in Midland for about the whole year of 2016. So I was there, <laughs> you know, I moved there when oil was $26. When I moved away, it was 72. And um, during that time, like I, you know, I looked at rental houses in Midland um, and the, the pain just wasn't there because I think number one, Midland is just always going to be the Alamo of the oil and gas business, right? Like, so mm-hmm. even though across the board in the lower 48, the oil and gas business was really, really struggling. Um, at the same time, people from Haynesville, people from the Bakken, uh, all these different areas that were completely shutting down were moving to Midland because there were still jobs, right? And so I think right. there was still a lot of demand in that Midland area. Um, I also, you know, I look at data from professionally managed apartment complexes and and one of your biggest competition is building. And that is one thing, you know, in Odessa and Midland, you've seen the apartments that have gone up there. Um, they way outbuilt uh, the supply and the absorption rates for that market for professionally managed apartment buildings uh, in 2000, call it 2014 through 2017. The finishes there way outpaced the absorption. Um, so they were dealing with a lot of excess uh, inventory and then oil mm. tanked, right? And so um, that was actually the worst performing apartment market in the entire United States was Midland. And it's kind of funny because, you know, if you're living there and you're living in a single family house and you're owning it, like you didn't see your prices go down that much. Uh, however, the rent cuts on on newly completed leasing up, uh, you know, l- new leases in the Midland area were down like 31 and a half percent last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, they've yet to recover from that. And and that was far worse than uh, your gateway metros like San Francisco and New York and everything like that. So it, it is a balance. And, and my thing, it comes back to like, what are you trying to diversify away from? You can definitely get some really, really great, robust cash flow in Midland, but you're still going to be tied to that oil and gas. Uh, my suggestion is if you really want to invest in your backyard and keep it very close, uh, Lubbock is a fantastic market that's, you know, what, an hour and a half tops away that you could still possibly self-manage. Um, you know, I myself and some partners own quite a few units out in Lubbock and, and we just we really love that market and where it's headed. Um, so maybe maybe check that out. And, and it still is more of an agricultural. It's got the student population. It's got a really big healthcare, a little bit of tech, um, good balance of industries and everything versus Midland that is so, so dedicated to oil and gas. No, absolutely. Are you familiar with uh, Fundrise or any of those other micro investment platforms? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with them, but uh, I, you know, I get that question all the time because typically the minimum investment in an apartment syndication varies from 50 to 75, sometimes a hundred thousand dollars. So it's, you know, it's a big chunk of, of capital. Um, I know the fund rises, you can do as little as 5,000. There are some differences there. Um, and, and I think it boils down to the advice I give there is don't just trust the deal because it's from Fundrise and assume that they're going to take care of you and they did their research and everything like that. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, always assume the opposite. Like when I see a deal, I'm trying to pick holes in it and find out, you know, where could this go wrong and let's mitigate those risks and everything like that. So 
my advice there is just because it's on Fundrise and you can put a low minimum in doesn't mean that it's going to be a good investment. Do make sure that you agree with like their projections, their pro forma, uh, the market that it's in, that type of thing. Like you can't just gloss over that because it's on Fundrise. Now, I will say because their minimums are lower um, and there's more people pulled in to from what I've seen, the returns are typically lower than what you would get in an apartment syndication. I don't think you get the same tax benefits because like when I invest passively in an apartment, I own shares in an LLC that physically owns that property. So I get, I'm a physical owner of that property. So I get entitlement to all the tax benefits that come there. And, you know, those can be 50% of your initial investment in year one up to I just did one that was like 150% of your year one investment is a tax write-off, right? Um, so that, like, that was a massive advantage for me, right? And I don't think you get that with Fundrise. Do check that because I, I honestly haven't looked that much into it. So I think, yeah, my parting advice there would be, uh, I love that it gets people involved in real estate. You may be better off just picking a REIT off the uh, off the stock market, but I, I, I don't quote me on that um, because you're not going to be subject to those uh, those tax benefits, as far as I know. Yeah, no, that, that's actually a great segue because the next thing I wanted to, to talk about a little bit was the tax benefits. So um, I don't know if you interface with uh, much 1031 property or transactions, but I know that uh, you know, the Biden administration has been talking about either restructuring or, or uh, you know pulling that away. Uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about the, the tax benefits. What, what does that currently look like? And, and what, you know, what, what may be on the horizon on, in that front? Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's talk 1031, right? Because you just brought that up. Um, the experts that I talk to that are very deeply ingrained in the 1031 world, they all pretty much agree that the 1031 will likely stay around. Uh, will it stay around in its current form? Probably not. I think the one thing that um, a lot of them are predicting will happen is that the step up in basis will get rid of. And, and what I mean by that is if you 1031 a half million dollar property into another property and you keep um, 1031 in that money, when you pass away, say it's worth $3 million. When you pass away, that $3 million will go to your heirs and the basis will be rewritten as uh, your heirs invested $0. Now, if they get rid of that step up in basis, the way I understand it is when you have that $3 million and you pass away, it will be subject to um, uh, capital gains taxes and everything like that, as if it was sold or purchased at $3 million. So I probably butchered that, but it's not a good deal. I mean, the step up in basis is a phenomenal, uh, you can basically kick the can down the road and never pay taxes on that. And then when you pass it down to your heirs, they don't pay capital gains tax on it until they go to sell it. Um, mm -hmm. And when they sell it, say, say they sell it for three and a half million dollars, they only, uh, their basis was 3 million. So they sold it for three and a half. They owe taxes on that, that half million um, versus if they get rid of the step up in basis, you would be on the hook for that whole three and a half million. So uh, I think 1031, it's been around for a very long time. It was originally created. And that's, that's one piece of advice I have with anything governance, um, taxes, everything like that, get to the bottom of why that tax advantage is there in the first place and how long it's been around, right? So that tax advantage has been there in the first place because farmers back in the day uh, wanted to trade farms and didn't want to pay capital gains tax on this farm that they've uh, barely made any money on. So the government created that incentive. And, and now you can do things, you can do wild things with 1031s. You know, you can 1031 oil and gas minerals into uh, 
multifamily real estate. Like it, it's very flexible. So I think it could get more rigid. They could get rid of a lot of the uh, um, step up and stuff like that. But I, I don't think it's going anywhere as a whole. Now, when it comes to um, depreciation tax benefits, uh, again, going back to like, where did these come from? Why are these here? The government ha- wants to incentivize low, not low income. Um, the government has an incentive for people to invest in affordable housing because, again, we can't physically build it. Um, so capital needs to be influxed into these older uh, aging buildings uh, to make them nice and livable and safe places to live for affordable housing. So that is why they incentivize through depreciation write-offs. When you purchase an apartment, you can do what's called bonus depreciation, and it's done through a cost segregation study. And, and basically, that's a lot of jargon for saying we go through and go through every single unit and itemize every single thing on that uh, apartment complex, right? So your roofs, your mm-hmm. AC, your uh, refrigerator, sinks, countertops, that type of thing. And each one, the IRS assigns a, um, a, a useful life to. And anything below, so like a roof is a useful life of like 30 years, parking lots are like 15, um, fridge is like five, right? And anything on that property, when you purchase it, less than 20 years of useful life, you can accelerate that depreciation from, instead of doing straight line depreciation over 27 and a half years, um, you can accelerate all of that depreciation to year one. And so that's what I'm saying. If I invest $100,000 in a deal and it has a 50% year one bonus depreciation write-off, my K-1, which is you know the form that I get from that passive investment, says that I lost $50,000 that first year of ownership, even though it's, it's a paper loss, right? But again, it's just that incentive for the U.S. government wants to encourage investment in affordable housing, and they do that through tax benefits. And so if you look at that over time, that's something that like the government will never come out and say, we don't we want to discourage investments in in affordable housing like they physically can't say that. Um, so, again, that's one of the tax benefits that I feel safer about. Now, will they get rid of bonus depreciation? It's scheduled to phase out in 2026. We'll see where that goes, who uh, is in office then and everything like that. But the point is. Um, the cost segregation study has always been around. It's just whether or not you can accelerate 100% of it to year one, or if you can accelerate just a portion of it. Um, so those those may come and go, but I think the the depreciation write-offs are, are here to stay. And it's, again, it's Uncle Sam saying, hey, please invest in this affordable housing, make it a nice place to live, improve the communities for the people that you invest, uh, um, that live in your investment property, and we'll reward you with these taxes. This leads me to the uh, obvious question. How would you maybe go about finding a good quality uh, real estate CPA that you know, under, understands that? So if you start to do this, you know, that, that they're you know, g- going to be getting everything you can. Yeah, that is a, uh, that's a really tough question. Reach out to me. I have several referrals that I can send you to. Uh, they're very busy people. So um, you know, be ready, have your ducks in a row. Um, but yeah, that I think has been the biggest thing of Again, it goes back to network, 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 network. When you rub elbows with people that, you know, make the amount of money of some of the people that I've met and they pay single digit taxes, if any taxes at all, I was just like, how do you do that? You know, show me to your person and they introduced me. And um, yeah, I mean, like last year and again, I'm just getting started here. But like last year, 
you know, I've been in this industry 10 years uh, in oil and gas, still have a W-2. So, you know, you do the math or you can look up what petroleum engineers make after 10 years. So you can imagine what kind of taxes I'm paying. I paid 12% tax rate. Maybe I shouldn't use, yeah, this is live anyways. It's already out there, but yeah. So low, low double digits tax rate. And I had a massive amount of um, bonus depreciation and, and depreciation write-offs and stuff that I can carry forward and use on future income and stuff like that. So um, the the benefits are very tangible. The benefits are real. The U.S. government wants to encourage you to invest in affordable housing, and they do that through these tax benefits. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's very real, and I'm still working on getting that into the single digits. All right, folks, appreciate you listening to the show today. Hope you're enjoying it. If you're ready to start a podcast, if you're listening to the show today and you've heard something that has lit the fire under you, and you're ready to go, check out Podbean. Go ahead and go to alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time, that is A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com backslash affiliate dash partners. If you're looking for a user-friendly interface that integrates everything from publishing to management, syndication, analysis, everything that you need in an easy-to-use, intuitive podcasting package, Check out podbean.com. It is the solution. It is the answer. One more time, alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. Back to the show. So um, you've been talking about mentorship and networking. Um, you know, to, to use a specific term, I'm curious, are you either a part of or, or uh, do you run a, a real estate mastermind group? Like an executive no, mastermind I- group? Yeah, I'm, I'm a part of, I don't run my own. I don't have my own coaching program. Again, everything I do in rigs to real estate is really just like getting the information out there. And I'm happy to give referrals to masterminds and um, different um, mentors and stuff like that. Just reach out to me. But the thing is, I like, I didn't want to, you know, have any personal gain off of rigs to real estate. I probably could have started a coaching program if I wanted to. I I don't think I have the time to do that, but um, yeah, I mean, it's really just getting the stories out there and telling people, Hey, this is very tangible. You can do this. Uh, Here's the first couple steps. Don't worry about step eight when you're not done with step one. Right. Um, And then I can, you know, definitely line people up with the right mentors of people who I know, like, and trust that I know can help you get to where you want to be in this industry. So yeah, just, just reach out to me. Um, I am a huge proponent of, of masterminds and uh, coaching programs because it just like, number one, especially if you pay to get in one, you've got skin in the game. You're not going to let yourself down all of a sudden, like now you're like, okay, this is real. I just put money. I invested in myself. Right. Number two, you get access to people who uh, are all like-minded individuals trying to get to the same goal, same end goal as you, which is, you know, financial freedom. Maybe it's a certain amount of cash flow, that type of thing. And being surrounded by that, you could have a couple bad weeks in a row and then you get on a meeting and somebody had a great week and and you see like you you could feel like the excitement and energy there and it picks you right back up. And um, so that's why I'm a huge proponent of joining those and not just in um, real estate, right? Again, fall in love mm-hmm. with the solution to the problems, not an individual solution. Uh, I'm a huge proponent, you know, join different oil and gas groups, different oil and gas meetups, because you're going to be around uh, like-minded people and you never know what can come out of it. So before we uh, sign off here in a couple of minutes, uh, I want to ask uh, you, I don't think uh, we, we talked about on the front uh, top of the hour here. Uh, what, what's the why? Colin? What, what, what's the why behind what you're doing? Why, uh, why do you get up in the morning? Yeah, I mean, the why of why I got started in real estate, um, 
2014, I was the newest member on a team in August of 14 and uh, oil prices completely fell through. And so obviously like new kid on the team, it was, it was easy. So I was one of the first ones let go there. I was out of work for three months and um, a couple interviews, stuff like that. And I was watching my savings dwindle down. I had six months of salary saved up, but I had it in the wrong investments. It was in uh, the stock market. And every time I sold something to keep the lights on, I was getting hit with capital gains taxes. I was like, there's got to be something better than this. And um, so long story short, I uh, interviewed for a position in Midland and uh, they called me on a Thursday and they were like, hey, we've got a job for you, but it's in Midland. And I was living in Denver at the time. And I said, all right, see you Monday. And so literally packed up my car and drove down in three days um, because that's just what you have to do. So I'm living there in Midland, single, single bedroom apartment, and I got something in the mail and it was in my wife's handwriting from my address in Denver. I was like, this is interesting. And I opened it up. I was engaged at the time we were planning our wedding. I opened it up. It was an invite to my own wedding from my wife said, hope you can be there. And like, I was laughing so hard at first, right? Because just what a dark sense of humor. I loved it, right? Uh, but at the same time, like it hit me with like a ton of bricks of, you know, what am I doing here? I literally picked up my entire life and drove halfway across the country on three days notice um, because I'm so tied to that oil and gas income. And that's when it really struck me of like, you've got to have multiple streams of income not correlated to oil and gas or commodities. And that is the only way to get out of the boomer bust nature of this industry. And, um, you know, in hindsight, moving down to Midland, it was the best decision I ever made. I still work with a lot of people that I met down there, you know, lifelong friends and everything like that. So I'm not saying don't move on a whim um, because that's what your job asks you to do. But at the same time, like it really made me think bigger picture, you know, um, you've got to do things that create more stability and more flexibility for yourself. And having passive income streams is really the best way to generate that kind of freedom and flexibility. And so that, that's what motivates me. I don't, I don't want another uh, invite mailed to me from my wife. And now I have two kids, right? So like, what are they going to send me in my one, one bedroom shack somewhere? <laughs> that, that's pretty good. No, that, that's, that's pretty funny. That's uh, <laughs> kind of like that. Uh, but well, so I assume you made the wedding. I did make the wedding. Yeah. And then um, she, so I lived six months in Midland alone and then we got married and um, our <laughs> like literally drove back from our wedding in Durango, Colorado, drove to Denver, had three days to pack up our house. And uh, we both moved down to Midland to a uh, apartment together and, and lived there six months. And they're honestly like, best six months um, of our lives. Cause we like, we had just gotten married. We had no friends in the area. It was really like she and I versus the world. So it was, it was a really mm-hmm. special time. And then, you know, obviously uh, long story short, the private equity I was working for down there got bought out by a company here in Denver. And we moved back to our same house in Denver. We had rented it out while we were gone and um, been back here ever since. So yeah, definitely uh, like the, the best wise, the strongest wise, I think maybe that's the, uh, the moral of this story, the strongest whys come from, you know, like the deepest depths and of like where you think you're at rock bottom in hindsight, like it was a great time in my life. I learned a ton of lessons and I, it put me on the path to uh, setting up to where I am now. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. No, I was going to say, I mean, maybe like the takeaway, Colin, is if you want to find yourself moving from Midland to Denver, Colorado, get invested in real estate. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was that was one of the biggest things. Uh, one of my original mentors, 
Uh, he's from Tennessee and he literally, he and his wife set up a spreadsheet of where they wanted to live in the U S because he has that much flexibility and freedom because he owns mm-hmm. cash flow and real estate. And like, that's his job is just buying and selling his own personal real estate and keeping that cash flow. And, you know, I'm talking like Denver, Seattle, Portland, San Diego, like these are his top ones. And, uh, you know, obviously in the oil and gas industry, like living in Denver, you're doing pretty damn good. There's a lot, uh, a lot worse places that, you know, you could be stuck in Baku uh, or something like that, but um, it definitely opens up the, uh, the world of possibilities to where, wherever you want to live. So uh, last thing, you know, uh, you know, I live in Midland. This is ostensibly sort of an oil and gas show as well. What are you seeing in the oil and gas uh, space uh, you know, as we move forward here? You know, it's going to be a tale of two cities, the the public companies, what we have to do, and the private companies, what they are able to do. So as a public company, we're going to be held to what our investors want. And our investors want free cash flow. They want stable growth, if any growth at all. Uh, and that's what they're putting value in. And the smaller independents, the private companies, they can ramp up to, you know, five, six rig programs from a two rig program and really take advantage of this, um, these oil prices. And, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out with, you know, OPEC r- ramping up production, whatever the Delta variant's going to do. But I do see a case for, uh, you know, oil being in the 60 to $75 range for the foreseeable future, uh, barring any, you know, uh, really fallout from Delta. But, you know, I've been watching that Delta in the uh, European markets and and they, you know, you saw cases spike and cases spike and they were predicting like, you know, we're going to see um, a peak that's three times the original one from last summer and then cases just completely fell off. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, herd immunity. It has to do with the vaccines being rolled out and everything like that. So I'm hoping that that's what we see in the U.S. as well as like cases spike up. You're going to see it on the news and um, people are going to be freaking out. And then it hopefully just drops off the map because of, of those reasons that I just said, because that's that's what happened in the U.K. And that's what happened here. If that happens, then I think uh, people will, will revise their uh, outlooks for oil and natural gas demand. Um, and that should improve the, the, the price forecast. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, Colin, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I don't think I've got anything else unless you've got any uh, parting words here. Um, I guess this is a good time as any to sign off. I know that you uh, gave a little bit of an intro or, or uh, you told us where people can find you. But well, one last time, where can people follow up with you and then we'll get out of here? Yeah, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn, um, Colin Placky 2 ls and uh, we can go from there. I'm very active on LinkedIn, or you can go to rigs2realestate.com. And, um, you know, we've got links to the podcast and all the educational uh, data there. So, yeah, feel free to reach out to, with me. I'm, I'm happy to help any and every single oil and gas professional that wants to reach out. Awesome. Well, appreciate the time. I uh, look forward to following up with you. Maybe we'll have you, uh, like I said, on uh, the Y Drive podcast at some point as the guest there and follow up with you, get an update on where you're at and see what uh, the rest of 2020 one looked like for you. But uh, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, sign off. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Ben. All right. And that is a wrap. I am your host, Ben Samuels. This has been another episode of Coffee and Liquidity. Appreciate the support. Appreciate you guys showing up. Go ahead and check out alderonventures.com for more information about what we've got going on and future episode releases. Thanks, guys.